This episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm this winter with some bunny slippers from bunnyslippers.com. Look cool like Chris Knight from Real Genius. You know what? They've got all kinds of cool slippers, all kinds of novelty slippers of all sorts. If you like horror movies, they've got horror movie stuff. If you like fantasy, you like science fiction, they've got that. They've got sports stuff. They've got all kinds of stuff. They've got slippers you can plug into USB things. Anyway, bunnyslippers.com. They are the sponsor of the show. And if you live someplace like in Australia, New Zealand, someplace where it's warm this time of year, they've got cool t-shirts at founditemclothing.com. Check out founditemclothing.com. I'm wearing one right now. Can't see it, but it's it's uh, a shirt that Jeff Bridges wears in the Big Lebowski. Check it out. It's pretty cool. Based off of a Japanese baseball t-shirt. Anyway, so uh, this month we're going to be doing Jack London stories. So check that out. And there will be part of the calendar and what will be coming out listed in the show notes. So check that out right now. And also, why not check out Dave's Corner of the Universe.com? It's Dave's Corner. You've heard him on the podcast. You'll hear him in an upcoming thing that we're doing about uh, underground secret bases and fan fiction and cool things like that. Um, listen for the episode of, uh, I think it's D U G S. Uh, Dave's Underground Goat Shenanigans. Check that out when it becomes available. I'll be hosting the first few episodes, of course, on this feed, so you can always check that out or chuck it out. And, you know, it's your podcast feed. Trim it how you feel. Anyway, uh, money for the shows, various shows. We'll get them their own podcast feeds. If you want to listen to PGTTCM just by itself or Black Clock Audio Tales just by itself, Zach Ferguson has his own, but occasionally we're going to throw out Articulate Warblers. And also, probably we're going to have some of these shows by Dave from Dave. And hopefully he'll still do some Dave's Corner of the Universe stuff for us. But, you know, I love producing podcasts. So if you've got a podcast idea, track me down and we'll do something. Especially if you're in the Portland metro area. Um... I, I'm working with Zach, and he's over in Brighton, England, and, you know, it's working out so far so good. But, yeah, no, um, let us know if you got something that would be of interest to us. So, yeah, on with some Jack London. Here we go. And why not check out Monster Kid Radio and keep an eye and an ear out for Twisted Pulp. Twisted Pulp. Here we go. Jack London, right now. The Seawolf by Jack London. Chapter 16 I cannot say that the position of mate carried with it anything more joyful than that there were no more dishes to wash. I was ignorant of the simplest duties of mate, and would have fared badly indeed had the sailors not sympathized with me. I knew nothing of the minutia of ropes and rigging, of the trimming and setting of sails, but the sailors took pains to put me to rights, Lewis proving an especially good teacher and I had little trouble with those under me. With the hunters, it was otherwise. Familiar in varying degree with the sea, they took me as a sort of joke. In truth, it was a joke to me that I, the veriest landsman, should be filling the office of mate, but to be taken as a joke by others was a different matter. I made no complaint, but Wolf Larsen demanded the most punctilious sea etiquette in my case. 
far more than poor Johansen had ever received, and at the expense of several rows, threats, and much grumbling, he brought the hunters to town. I was Mr. Van Waden, fore and aft, and it was only unofficially that Wolf Larsen himself ever addressed me as Hulk. It was amusing. Perhaps the wind would haul a few points while we were at dinner, and as I left the table, he would say, Mr. Van Waden, will you kindly put him out on the port tack? And I would go on deck, beckon Lewis to me, and learn from him what was to be done. Then a few minutes later, having digested his instructions and thoroughly mastered the maneuver, I would proceed to issue my orders. I remember an early instance of this kind when Wolf Larsen appeared on the scene just as I had begun to give orders. He smoked his cigar and looked on quietly till the thing was accomplished, and then paced aft by my side along the weather pool. Huh? he said. I beg pardon, Mr. Van Wade. I congratulate you. I think you can now fire your father's legs back into the grave to him. You've discovered your own and learned to stand on them. A little rope work, sail-making, and experience with storms and such things, and by the end of the voyage, you could ship on any coasting schooner. It was during this period, between the death of Johansson and the arrival on the sealing grounds, that I passed my pleasantest hours on the ghost. Wolf Larsen was quite considerate. The sailors helped me, and I was no longer in irritating contact with Thomas Mugridge. And I make free to say, as the days went by, that I found I was taking a certain secret pride in myself. Fantastic as the situation was, a landlubber second in command, I was nevertheless carrying it off well, and during that brief time I was proud of myself, and I grew to love the heaving roll of the ghost under my feet as she wallowed north and west through the tropic sea, to the island where we filled our water casks. But my happiness was not unalloyed. It was comparative. A period of less misery slipped in between a past of great miseries and a future of great miseries. For the ghost, so far as the seamen were concerned, was a hell ship of the worst description. They never had a moment's rest or peace. Wolf Larsen treasured against them the attempt on his life and the drubbing he had received in the forecast and morning, noon, and night, and all night as well, he devoted himself to making life unlivable for them. He knew well the psychology of the little thing, and it was the little things by which he kept the crew worked up to the verge of madness. I have seen Harrison called from his bunk to put properly away a misplaced paintbrush, and the two watches below hailed from their tired sleep to accompany him and seem to it. A little thing, truly, but when multiplied by the thousand ingenious devices of such a mind, the mental state of the men in the forecastle may be slightly comprehended. Of course, much grumbling went on, and little outbursts were continually occurring. Blows were struck, and there were always two or three men nursing injuries at the hands of the human beast who was their master. Concerted action was impossible in face of the heavy arsenal of weapons carried in the steerage and cabin. Leach and Johnson were the two particular victims of Wolf Larsen's diabolic temper, and the look of profound melancholy which had settled on Johnson's face and in his eyes made my heart bleed. With Leach it was different. There was too much of the fighting beast in him. 
He seemed possessed by an insatiable fury which gave no time for grief. His lips had become distorted into a permanent snarl, which at mere sight of Wolf Larsen broke out in sound, horrible and menacing, and I do believe unconsciously. I have seen him follow Wolf Larsen about with his eyes, like an animal its keeper, while the animal-like snarl sounded deep in his throat and vibrated forth between his teeth. I remember once, on deck in bright day, touching him on the shoulder as preliminary to giving an order. His back was toward me, and at the first feel of my hand he leaped upright in the air and away from me, snarling and turning his head as he leaped. He had, for the moment, mistaken me for the man he hated. Both he and Johnson would have killed Wolf Larsen at the slightest opportunity, but the opportunity never came. Wolf Larsen was too wise for that, and besides, they had no adequate weapons. With their fists alone, they had no chance whatever. Time and again, he fought it out with Leech, who fought back always like a wildcat, tooth and nail at first, until stretched, exhausted, or unconscious on the deck, and he was never averse to another encounter. All the devil that was in him challenged the devil in Wolf Larsen. They had but to appear on deck at the same time, when they would be at it, cursing, snarling, striking. And I have seen Leech fling himself upon Wolf Larsen without warning or provocation. Once he threw his heavy sheath knife, missing Wolf Larsen's throat by an inch. Another time he dropped a steel marlin spike from Mizzen Cross Tree. It was a difficult cast to make on a rolling ship, but the sharp point of the spike, whistling seventy-five feet through the air, barely missed Wolf Larsen's head as he emerged from the cabin companionway and drove its length two inches and over into the solid deck planking. Still another time, he stole into the steerage, possessed himself of a loaded shotgun, and was making a rush for the deck with it when caught by Kerfoot and disarmed. I often wondered why Wolf Larsen did not kill him and make an end of it, but he only laughed and seemed to enjoy it. There seems a certain spice about it, such as men must feel who take delight in making pets of ferocious animals. It gives a thrill to life, he explained to me, when life is carried in one's hand. Man is a natural gambler, and life is the biggest stake he can lay. The greater the odds, the greater the thrill. Why should I deny myself the joy of exciting Leech's soul to fever pitch? For that matter, I do him a kindness. The greatness of sensation is mutual. He is living more royally than any man forward, though he does not know it. For he has what they have not, purpose, something to do and be done, an all-absorbing end to strife to attain, the desire to kill me, the hope that he may kill me, really hope. He is living deep and high. I doubt that he has ever lived so swiftly and keenly before and I honestly envy him sometimes when I see him raging at the summit of passion and sensibility. Oh, but it is cowardly, cowardly, I cried. You have all the advantage. Of the two of us, you and I, who is the greater coward? He asked seriously. If the situation is unpleasing, you compromise with your conscience when you make yourself a party to it. If you were really great, really true to yourself, you would join forces with Leech and Johnson. But you are afraid. You are afraid. You want to live. 
The life that is in you cries out that it must live no matter what the cost. So you live ignominiously, untrue to the best you dream of, sinning against your whole pitiful little code. And if there were a hell, heading your soul straight for it. Bah, I play the braver part. I do no sin, for I am true to the promptings of the life that is in me. I am sincere with my soul, at least, and that is what you are not. There was a sting in what he said. Perhaps, after all, I was playing a cowardly part. And the more I thought about it, the more it appeared that my duty to myself lay in doing what he had advised, lay in joining forces with Johnson and Leach and working for his death. Right here, I think, entered the austere conscience of my Puritan ancestry, impelling me toward lurid deeds and sanctioning even murder as right conduct. I dwelt upon the idea. It would be a most moral act to rid the world of such a monster. Humanity would be better and happier for it, life fairer and sweeter. I pondered it long, lying sleepless in my bunk and reviewing in endless procession the facts of the situation. I talked with Johnson and Leach during the night watches when Wolf Larsen was below. Both men had lost hope. Johnson because of temperamental despondency. Leach because he had beaten himself out of the vain struggle and was exhausted. But he caught my hand in a passionate grip one night, saying, I think you're square, Mr. Van Waden, but stay where you are and keep your mouth shut. Say nothing but saw wood. We're dead men, I know it. But all the same, you might be able to do us a favor sometime when we need it damn bad. It was only next day when Wainwright Island loomed to windward, close abeam, that Wolf Larsen opened his mouth in prophecy. He had attacked Johnson, been attacked by Leech, and had just finished whipping the pair of them. Leech, he said, you know I'm going to kill you sometime or other, don't you? A snarl was the answer. And as for you, Johnson, you'll get so tired of life before I'm through with you that you'll fling yourself over the side. See if you don't. That's a suggestion, he added in an aside to me. I'll bet you a month's pay he acts upon it. I had cherished a hope that his victims would find an opportunity to escape while filling our water barrels, but Wolf Larsen had selected his spot well. The ghost lay half a mile beyond the surf line of a lonely beach. Here debauched a steep gorge with precipitous volcanic walls which no man could scale. And here, under his direct supervision, for he went ashore himself, Leach and Johnson filled the small casks and rolled them down to the beach. They had no chance to make a break for liberty in one of the boats. Harrison and Kelly, however, made such an attempt. They composed one of the boat's crews, and their task was to ply between the schooner and the shore, carrying a single cask each trip. Just before dinner, starting for the beach with an empty barrel, they altered their course and bore away to the left to round the promontory which jutted into the sea between them and Liberty. Beyond its foaming base lay the pretty villages of the Japanese colonists and smiling valleys which penetrated deep into the interior. Once in the fastnesses they promised, and the two men could defy Wolf Larsen. I had observed Henderson and Smoke loitering about the deck all morning and I now learned why they were there. 
Procuring their rifles, they opened fire in a leisurely manner upon the deserters. It was a cold-blooded exhibition of marksmanship. At first, their bullets zipped harmlessly along the surface of the water on either side of the boat. But as the men continued to pull lustily, they struck closer and closer. Now watch me take Kelly's right oar, Smoke said, drawing a more careful aim. I was looking through the glasses, and I saw the oar blade shatter as he shot. Henderson duplicated it, selecting Harrison's right oar. The boat slewed around. The two remaining oars were quickly broken. The men tried to row with the splinters and had them shot out of their hands. Kelly ripped up a bottom board and began paddling, but dropped it with a cry of pain as its splinters drove into his hands. Then they gave up, letting the boat drift till a second boat, sent from the shore by Wolf Larsen, took them in tow and brought them aboard. Late that afternoon, we hove up anchor and got away. Nothing was before us but the three or four months hunting on the sealing grounds. The outlook was bleak indeed, and I went about my work with a heavy heart. An almost funereal gloom seemed to have descended upon the ghost. Wolf Larsen had taken to his bunk with one of his strange splitting headaches. Harrison stood listlessly at the wheel, half supporting himself by it, as though wearied by the weight of his flesh. The rest of the men were morose and silent. I came upon Kelly crouching to the lee of the forecastle scuttle, his head on his knees, his arms about his head in an attitude of unutterable despondency. Johnson I found lying full length on the forecastle head, staring at the troubled churn of the forefoot, and I remembered with horror the suggestion Wolf Larsen had made. It seemed likely to bear fruit. I tried to break in on the man's morbid thoughts by calling him away. But he smiled sadly at me and refused to obey. Leech approached as I returned aft. I want to ask a favor, Mr. Van Waden, he said. If it's your luck to ever make Frisco once more, will you hunt up Matt McCarthy? He's my old man. He lives on the hill back of the Mayfair Bakery, running a cobbler's shop that everybody knows, and you'll have no trouble. Tell him I live to be sorry for the trouble I brought him and the things I'd done, and, and just tell him God bless him for me. I nodded my head, but said, We'll all win back to San Francisco, Leach, and you'll be with me when I go to see Matt McCarthy. I'd like to believe you, he answered, shaking my hand, but I can't. Wolf Larson will do for me, I know it, and all I can hope is he'll do it quick. And as he left me, I was aware of the same desire at my heart. Since it was to be done, let it be done with dispatch. The general gloom had gathered me into its folds. The worst appeared inevitable, and as I paced the deck hour after hour, I found myself afflicted with Wolf Larsen's repulsive ideas. What was it all about? Where was the grandeur of life that it should permit such wanton destruction of human souls? It was a cheap and sordid thing, after all, this life, and the sooner over the better, over and done with. I too leaned upon the rail and gazed longingly into the sea, with the certainty that, sooner or later, I should be sinking down, down, through the cool green depths of its oblivion. End of chapter 16 Sea Wolf by Jack Blendon Chapter 17 Strange to say, in spite of the general foreboding, 
nothing of a special moment happened on the coast. We ran on to the north and west till we raised the coast of Japan and picked up with the great seal herd. Coming from no man knew where in the illimitable Pacific, it was traveling north on its annual migration to the rookeries of Bering Sea. And north we traveled with it, ravaging and destroying, flinging the naked carcasses to the shark, and salting down the skins so that they might later adorn the fair shoulders of the women of the cities. It was wanton slaughter, and all for women's sake. No man ate of the seal meat or the oil. After a good day's killing, I have seen our decks covered with hides and bodies, slippery with fat and blood, the scuppers running red, masts, ropes, and rails spattered with the sanguinary color, and the men like butchers plying their trade, naked and red of arm and hand, hard at work with ripping and flensing knives, removing the skins from the pretty sea creatures they had killed. It was my task to tally the pelts as they came aboard from the boats, to oversee the skinning and afterward the cleansing of the decks and bringing things shipshape again. It was not pleasant work. My soul and my stomach revolted at it. And yet, in a way, this handling and directing of many men was good for me. It developed what little executive ability I possessed, and I was aware of a toughening or hardening which I was undergoing and which could not be anything but wholesome for sissy Van Waden. One thing I was beginning to feel, and that was that I could never again be quite the same man I had been. While my hope and faith in human life still survived Wolf Larsen's destructive criticism, he had, nevertheless, been a cause of change in minor matters. He had opened up for me the world of the real, of which I had known practically nothing, and from which I had always shrunk. I had learned to look more closely at life as it was lived, to recognize that there were such things as facts in the world, to emerge from the realm of mind and idea, and to place certain values on the concrete and objective phases of existence. I saw more of Wolf Larsen than ever when we had gained the grounds. For when the weather was fair and we were in the midst of the herd, all hands were away in the boats, and left on board were only he and I, and Thomas Muggridge, who did not count. But there was no play about it. The six boats spreading out fanwise from the schooner until the first weather boat and the last lee boat were anywhere from 10 to 20 miles apart, cruised along a straight course over the sea till nightfall or bad weather drove them in. It was our duty to sail the ghost well to leeward of the last lee boat so that all the boats should have fair wind to run for us in case of squalls or threatening weather. It is no slight matter for two men particularly when a stiff wind has sprung up, to handle a vessel like the ghost, steering, keeping lookout for the boats, and setting or taking in sail. So it devolved upon me to learn and learn quickly. Steering, I picked up easily, but running aloft to the cross tees and swinging my whole weight by my arms when I left the rat lines and climbed still higher was more difficult. This too I learned and quickly for I felt somehow a wild desire to vindicate myself in Wolf Larsen's eyes, to prove my right to live in ways other than of the mind. Nay, the time came when I took joy in the run of the masthead, and in the clinging on by my legs at the precarious height while I swept the sea with glasses in search of the boats. I remember one beautiful day when the boats left early and the reports of the hunters' guns grew dim and distant and died away as they scattered far and wide over the sea. There was just the faintest wind from the westward, 
but it breathed its last by the time we managed to get to leeward of the last lee boat. One by one, I was at the masthead and saw the six boats disappeared over the bulge of the earth as they followed the seal into the west. We lay scarcely rolling on the placid sea, unable to follow. Wolf Larsen was apprehensive. The barometer was down and the sky to the east did not please him. He studied it with unceasing vigilance. Here she comes out of there, he said, hard and snappy. Putting us to windward of the boats, it's likely there'll be empty bunks in steerage and forecastle. By eleven o'clock, the sea had become glass. By midday, though we were well up in the northerly latitudes, the heat was sickening. There was no freshness in the air. It was sultry and oppressive, reminding me of what the old Californians term earthquake weather. There was something ominous about it, and in intangible ways, one was made to feel that the worst was about to come. Slowly, the whole eastern sky filled with clouds that overtowered us like some black sierra of the infernal regions. So clearly could one see canyon, gorge, and precipice, and the shadows that lie therein, that one looked unconsciously for the white surf line and the bellowing caverns where the sea charges on the land. And still we rocked gently, and there was no wind. It's no square, Wolf Larsen said. Old Mother Nature's going to get up on her hind legs and howl for all that's in her, and it'll keep us jumping, hump, to pull through with half our boats. You'd better run up and loosen the topsails. But if it is going to howl, and there are only two of us, I asked, a note of protest in my voice. Why, we've got to make the best of the first of it and run down to our boats before our canvas is ripped out of us. After that, I don't give a rap what happens. The sticks will stand it, and you and I will have to, though we've plenty cut out for us. Still, the calm continued. We ate dinner, a hurried and anxious meal for me, with eighteen men abroad on the sea and beyond the bulge of the earth, and with that heaven-rolling mountain range of clouds moving slowly down upon us. Wolf Larsen did not seem affected, however, though I noticed when we returned to the deck a slight twitching of the nostrils, a perceptible quickness of movement. His face was stern. The lines of it had grown hard, and yet in his eyes, blue, clear blue this day, there was a strange brilliancy, a bright scintillating light. It struck me that he was joyous in a ferocious sort of way, that he was glad there was an impending struggle that he was thrilled and upborne with knowledge that one of the great moments of living when the tide of life surges up in flood was upon him. Once, and unwitting that he did so or that I saw, he laughed aloud mockingly and defiantly at the advancing storm. I see him yet standing there like a pygmy out of the Arabian nights before the huge front of some malignant genie. He was daring destiny and he was unafraid. He walked to the galley. Cookie, by the time you've finished pots and pans, you'll be wanted on deck. Stand ready for a call. Hump, he said, becoming cognizant of the fascinated gaze I bent upon him. This beats whiskey and is where your Omar misses. I think he only half lived after all. The western half of the sky had by now grown murky. The sun had dimmed and faded out of sight. It was two in the afternoon, 
and a ghostly twilight shot through by wandering purplish lights had descended upon us. In this purplish light, Wolf Larsen's face glowed and glowed, and to my excited fancy, he appeared encircled by a halo. We lay in the midst of an unearthly quiet, while all about us were signs and omens of oncoming sound and movement. The sultry heat had become unendurable. The sweat was standing on my forehead, and I could feel it trickling down my nose. I felt as though I should faint and reached out to the rail for support. And then, just then, the faintest possible whisper of air passed by. It was from the east, and like a whisper, it came and went. The drooping canvas was not stirred, and yet my face had felt the air and been cooled. Cookie, Wolf Larsen called in a low voice. Thomas Muggridge turned a pitiable, scared face. Let go that four-boom tackle and pass it across. And when she's willing, let go the sheet and come in snug with the tackle. And if you make a mess of it, it will be the last you ever make. Understand? Mr. Van Wade, stand by to pass the head sails over. Then jump for the top sails and spread them quick as God'll let you. The quicker you do it, the easier you'll find it. As for cooking, if he isn't lively, bat him between the eyes. I was aware of the compliment and pleased in that no threat had accompanied my instructions. We were lying head to northwest, and it was his intention to jibe over all with the first puff. We'll have the breeze on our corner, he explained to me. By the last guns, the boats were bearing away slightly to the southward. He turned and walked off to the wheel. I went forward and took my station at the jibs. Another whisper of wind, and another passed by. The canvas flapped lazily. Thank God she's not coming all of a bunch, Mr. Van Wyden, was the Cockney's fervent ejaculation. And I was indeed thankful, for I had by this time learned enough to know, with all our canvas spread, what disaster in such event awaited us. The whispers of wind became puffs. The sails filled, the ghost moved. Wolf Larsen put the wheel hard up to port, and we began to pay off. The wind was now dead astern, muttering and puffing stronger and stronger, and my head sails were pounding lustily. I did not see what went on elsewhere, though I felt the sudden surge and heel of the schooner as the wind pressures changed to the jibing of the fore and mainsails. My hands were full with the flying jib, jib, and staysail, and by the time this part of my task was accomplished, the ghost was leaping into the southwest, the wind on her quarter, and all her sheets to starboard. Without pausing for breath, though my heart was beating like a trip hammer from my exertions, I sprang to the topsails, and before the wind had become too strong, we had them firmly set and were coiling down. Then I went aft for orders. Wolf Larsen nodded approval and relinquished the wheel to me. The wind was strengthening steadily and the sea rising. For an hour I steered, each moment becoming more difficult. I had not the experience to steer at the gate we were going on a quartering course. Now take a run up with the glasses and raise some of the boats. We've made at least ten knots and we're going twelve or thirteen now. The old girl knows how to walk. 
I contested myself with the four cross trees, some seventy feet above the deck. As I searched the vacant stretch of water before me, I comprehended thoroughly the need for haste if we were to recover any of our men. Indeed, as I gazed at the heavy sea through which we were running, I doubted that there was a boat afloat. It did not seem possible that such frail craft could survive such stress of wind and water. I could not feel the full force of the wind, for we were running with it. But from my lofty perch I looked down as though outside the ghost and apart from her, and saw the shape of her outlined sharply against the foaming sea as she tore along, instinct with life. Sometimes she would lift and send across some great wave, burying her starboard rail from view and covering her deck to the hatches with the boiling ocean. At such moments, starting from a windward roll, I would go flying through the air with a dizzying swiftness, as though I clung to the end of a huge inverted pendulum, the arc of which, between the greater rolls, must have been seventy feet or more. Once the terror of this giddy sweep overpowered me, and for a while I clung on, hand and foot, weak and trembling, unable to search the sea for the missing boats or to behold aught of the sea but that which roared beneath and strove to overwhelm the ghosts. But the thought of the men in the midst of it steadied me, and in my quest for them I forgot myself. For an hour I saw nothing but the naked, desolate sea, and then where a vagrant shaft of sunlight struck the ocean and turned its surface to wrathful silver, I caught a small black speck thrust skyward for an instant and swallowed up. I waited patiently. Again the tiny point of light projected itself through the wrathful blaze, a couple of points off our port bow. I did not attempt to shout, but communicated the news to Wolf Larsen by waving my arm. He changed the course, and I signaled affirmation when the speck showed dead ahead. It grew larger and so swiftly that for the first time I fully appreciated the speed of our flight. Wolf Larsen motioned for me to come down, and when I stood beside him at the wheel, gave me instructions for heaving to. Expect all hell to break loose, he cautioned me, but don't mind it. Yours is to do your own work and to have Cookie stand by the foresheet. I managed to make my way forward. But there was little choice aside, for the weather rail seemed buried as often as the lee. Having instructed Thomas Mugridge as to what he was to do, I clambered into the fore-rigging a few feet. The boat was now very close, and I could make out plainly that it was lying head to wind and sea, and dragging on its mast and sail, which had been thrown overboard and made to serve as a sea anchor. The three men were bailing. Each rolling mountain whelmed them from view, and I would wait with sickening anxiety, fearing that they would never appear again. Then, and with black suddenness, the boat would shoot clear through the foaming crest, bow pointed to the sky, and the whole length of her bottom showing, wet and dark, till she seemed on end. There would be a fleeting glimpse of the three men flinging water in frantic haste when she would topple over and fall into the yawning valley, bow down, and showing her full length inside to the stern, upreared almost directly above the bow. Each time that she reappeared was a miracle. 
the ghost suddenly changed her course, keeping away. And it came to me with a shock that Wolf Larsen was giving up the rescue as impossible. Then I realized that he was preparing to heave to, and dropped to the deck to be in readiness. We were now dead before the wind, the boat far away and abreast of us. I felt an abrupt easing of the schooner, a loss for the moment of all strain and pressure, coupled with a swift acceleration of speed. She was rushing around on her heel into the wind. As she arrived at right angles to the sea, the full force of the wind, from which we had hitherto run away, caught us. I was unfortunately and ignorantly facing it. It stood up against me like a wall, filling my lungs with air, which I could not expel. And as I choked and strangled, and as the ghost wallowed for an instant, broadside on, and rolling straight over and far into the wind, I beheld a huge sea rise far above my head. I turned aside, caught my breath, and looked again. The wave overtopped the ghost, and I gazed sheer up and into it. A shaft of sunlight smote the overgirl, and I caught a glimpse of translucent rushing green backed by a milky smother of foam. Then it descended. Pandemonium broke loose. Everything happened at once. I was struck a crushing, stunning blow, nowhere in particular and yet everywhere. My hold had been broken loose, and I was underwater. And the thought passed through my mind that this was the terrible thing of which I had heard, the being swept in the trough of the sea. My body struck and pounded as it was dashed helplessly along and turned over and over. And when I could hold my breath no longer, I breathed the stinging salt water into my lungs. But through it all, I clung to the one idea. I must get the jib backed over to windward. I had no fear of death. I had no doubt that I should come through somehow. And as this idea of fulfilling Wolf Larsen's order persisted in my day's consciousness, I seemed to see him standing at the wheel, in the midst of the wild welter, pitting his will against the will of the storm and defying it. I brought up violently against what I took to be the rail, breathed and breathed the sweet air again. I tried to rise, but struck my head and was knocked back on hands and knees. By some freak of the waters, I had been swept clear under the forecastle head and into the eyes. As I scrambled out on all fours, I passed over the body of Thomas Mugridge, who lay in a groaning heap. There was no time to investigate. I must get the jib backed over. When I emerged on deck, it seemed that the end of everything had come. On all sides there was a rending and crashing of wood and steel and canvas. The ghost was being wrenched and torn to fragments. The foresail and foretopsail, emptied of the wind by the maneuver and with no wind to bring in the sheet in time, were thundering into ribbons, the heavy boom threshing and splintering from rail to rail. The air was thick with flying wreckage, detached ropes and stays were hissing and coiling like snakes, and down through it all crashed the gaff of the foresail. The spar could not have missed me by many inches, while it spurred me to action. Perhaps the situation was not hopeless. I remembered Wolf Larsen's caution. He had expected all hell to break loose, and here it was. And where was he? 
I caught sight of him toiling at the main sheet, heaving it in and flat with his tremendous muscles, the stern of the schooner lifted high in the air, and his body outlined against a white surge of sea sweeping past. All this and more, a whole world of chaos and wreck, in possibly fifteen seconds I had seen and heard and grasped. I did not stop to see what had become of the small boat, but sprang to the jib sheet. The jib itself was beginning to slap, partially filling and emptying with sharp reports, but with the turn of the sheet and the application of my whole strength each time it slapped, I slowly backed it. This I know, I did my best. I pulled till I burst open the ends of all my fingers, and while I pulled, the flying jib and staysail split their cloths apart and thundered into nothingness. Still I pulled, holding what I gained each time with a double turn until the next slap gave me more. Then the sheet gave with greater ease and Wolf Larsen was beside me, heaving in alone while I was busy taking up the slack. Make fast, he shouted, and come on. As I followed him, I noticed that, in spite of rack and ruin, a rough order obtained. The ghost was hove too. She was still in working order, and she was still working. Though the rest of her sails were gone, the jib back to windward and the mainsail, hauled down flat, were themselves holding, and holding her bow to the furious sea as well. I looked for the boat, and while Wolf Larsen cleared the boat tackles, saw it lift to leeward on a big sea and not a score of feet away. And so nicely had he made his calculation, we drifted fairly down upon it, so that nothing remained to do but hook the tackles to either end and hoist it aboard. But this was not done so easily as it is written. In the bow was Kerfoot, Oofty Oofty in the stern, and Kelly amidships. As we drifted closer, the boat would rise on a wave while we sank in the trough, till almost straight above me I could see the heads of the three men craned overside and looking down. Then, the next moment, we would lift and soar upward while they sank far down beneath us. It seemed incredible that the next surge should not crush the ghost down upon the tiny eggshell. But at the right moment, I passed the tackle to the Kanaka, while Wolf Larsen did the same thing forward to Kerfoot. Both tackles were hooked in a trice, and the three men, deftly timing the roll, made a simultaneous leap aboard the schooner. As the ghost rolled her side out of water, the boat was lifted snugly against her, and before the return roll came, we had heaved it in over the side and turned it bottom up on the deck. I noticed blood spouting from Kerfoot's left hand. In some way, the third finger had been crushed to a pulp. But he gave no sign of pain, and with his single right hand helped us lash the boat in its place. Stand by to let that jib over! You, Ufti! Wolf Larsen commanded, the very second we had finished with the boat. Kelly, come aft and slack off the main sheet. You, Kerfoot! Go forward and see what's become of Cookie. Mr. Van Wade, run aloft again and cut away any stray stuff on your way. And having commanded, he went aft with his peculiar tigerish leaps to the wheel. While I toiled up the fore shrouds, the ghost slowly paid off. This time, as we went into the trough of the sea and were swept, there were no sails to carry away. 
and halfway to the cross trees and flattened against the rigging by the full force of the wind, so that it would have been impossible for me to have fallen, the ghost almost on her beam ends and the mast parallel with the water, I looked, not down, but at almost right angles from the perpendicular to the deck of the ghost. But I saw not the deck, but where the deck should have been, for it was buried beneath a wild tumbling of water. Out of this water I could see the two masts rising, and that was all. The ghost for the moment was buried beneath the sea. As she squared off more and more, escaping from the side pressure, she righted herself and broke her deck like a whale's back through the ocean's surface. Then we raced, and wildly, across the wild sea. The while I hung like a fly in the cross trees and searched for the other boats. In half an hour, I sighted the second one, swamped and bottom up, to which were desperately clinging Jack Horner, Fat Lewis, and Johnson. This time I remained aloft, and Wolf Larsen succeeded in heaving to without being swept. As before, we drifted down upon it. Tackles were made fast, and lines flung to the men, who scrambled aboard like monkeys. The boat itself was crushed and splintered against the schooner's side as it came inboard. But the wreck was securely lashed, for it could be patched and made whole again. Once more, the ghost bore away before the storm, this time so submerging herself that for some seconds I thought she would never reappear. Even the wheel, quite a deal higher than the waist, was covered and swept again and again. At such moments I felt strangely alone with God, alone with Him in watching the chaos of His wrath. And then the wheel would reappear, and Wolf Larsen's broad shoulders, his hands gripping the spokes and holding the schooner to the course of his will, himself an earth god, dominating the storm, flinging its descending waters from him and riding it to his own ends. And oh, the marvel of it, the marvel of it, that tiny men should live and breathe and work and drive so frail a contrivance of wood and cloth through so tremendous an elemental strife. As before, the ghost swung out of the trough, lifting her deck again out of the sea, and dashed before the howling blast. It was now half-past five, and half an hour later, when the last of the day lost itself in a dim and furious twilight, I sighted a third boat. It was bottom-up, and there was no sign of its crew. Wolf Larsen repeated his maneuver, holding off and then rounding up to windward and drifting down upon it. But this time he missed by forty feet, the boat passing astern. Number four boat! Ufti Ufti cried, his keen eyes reading its number in the one second when it lifted clear of the foam and upside down. It was Henderson's boat, and with him had been lost Holyoke and Williams, another of the deep water crowd. Lost they indubitably were, but the boat remained, and Wolf Larsen made one more reckless effort to recover. I had come down to the deck, and I saw Horner and Kerfoot vainly protest against the attempt. By God, I'll not be robbed of my boat by any storm that ever blew out of hell, he shouted, and though we four stood with our heads together that we might hear, his voice seemed faint and far, as though removed from us an immense distance. Mr. Van Wayne, he cried, and I heard through the tumult as one might hear a whisper, Stand by that jib with 
Johnson and Ufti. The rest of you, tail aft to the main sheet. Lively now, or I'll sail you all into Kingdom Come. Understand? And when he put the wheel hard over and the ghost bow swung off, there was nothing for the hunters to do but obey and make the best of a risky chance. How great the risk I realized when I was once more buried beneath the pounding seas and clinging for life to the pinrail at the foot of the foremast. My fingers were torn loose, and I swept across the side and over the side into the sea. I could not swim, but before I could sink, I was swept back again. A strong hand gripped me, and when the ghost finally emerged, I found that I owed my life to Johnson. I saw him looking anxiously about him, and noted that Kelly, who had come forward at the last moment, was missing. This time, having missed the boat and not being in the same position as in the previous instances, Wolf Larsen was compelled to resort to a different maneuver. Running off before the wind with everything to starboard, he came about and returned close-hauled on the port tack. Grand! Johnson shouted in my ear as we successfully came through the attendant deluge, and I knew he referred not to Wolf Larsen's seamanship, but to the performance of the ghost herself. It was now so dark that there was no sign of the boat, but Wolf Larsen held back through the frightful turmoil as if guided by unerring instinct. This time, though we were continually half buried, there was no trough in which to be swept, and we drifted squarely down upon the upturned boat, badly smashing it as it was heaved inboard. Two hours of terrible work followed, in which all hands of us, two hunters, three sailors, Wolf Larsen and I, reefed, first one and then the other, the jib and mainsail. Hove to under this short canvas, our decks were comparatively free of water, while the ghost bobbed and ducked amongst the combers like a cork. I had burst open the ends of my fingers at the very first and during the reefing I had worked with tears of pain running down my cheeks, and when all was done, I gave up like a woman, and rolled upon the deck in the agony of exhaustion. In the meantime, Thomas Mugridge, like a drowned rat, was being dragged out from under the forecastle head, where he had cravenly ensconced himself. I saw him pulled aft to the cabin, and noted with a shock of surprise that the galley had disappeared. A clean space of deck showed where it had stood. In the cabin, I found all hands assembled, sailors as well, and while coffee was being cooked over the small stove, we drank whiskey and crunched hardtack. Never in my life had food been so welcome, and never had hot coffee tasted so good. So violently did the ghost pitch and toss and tumble that it was impossible for even the sailors to move about without holding on and several times, after a cry of, Now she takes off! We were heaped upon the wall of the port cabins as though it had been the deck. To hell with the lookout! I heard Wolf Larsen say when we had eaten and drunk our fill. There's nothing can be done on deck. If anything's going to run us down, we couldn't get out of its way. Turn in, all hands. Get some sleep. The sailors slipped forward, setting the side lights as they went, while the two hunters remained to sleep in the cabin, it not being deemed advisable to open the slide to the steerage companionway. 
Wolf Larsen and I, between us, cut off Kerfoot's crushed finger and sewed up the stump. Mugridge, who during all the time he had been compelled to cook and serve coffee and keep the fire going, had complained of internal pains, now swore that he had a broken rib or two. On examination, we found that he had three. But his case was deferred to next day, principally for the reason that I did not know anything about broken ribs and would first have to read it up. I don't think it was worth it, I said to Wolf Larsen. A broken boat for Kelly's life? That Kelly didn't amount to much, was the reply. Good night. After all that had passed, suffering intolerable anguish in my finger ends, and with three boats missing, to say nothing of the wild capers the ghost was cutting, I should have thought it impossible to sleep. But my eyes must have closed the instant my head touched the pillow, and in utter exhaustion I slept throughout the night. The while the ghost, lonely and undirected, fought her way through the storm. End of chapter 17